0: Welcome to Fred Knot with me, Rosie Bennett. Fred Knot is the podcast that aims to demystify the learning process that we all go through in our lives, work and otherwise. I'll be talking to the heroes and the champions of our field about the lessons that have most defined their careers and help us to figure out how we can learn from what they've already figured out. Nothing in life is a linear process, so let's get more at ease with the ups and the downs and realise that wherever we are in our journey, we really aren't alone. This podcast is brought to you by Augustine Strings, my string of choice and a company full of my favourite people in the guitar world. I play the Imperial Reds and the Paragon Reds if I fancy a little bit of a sharper sound, you can check them out at augustinestrings.com. In today's episode, I talk to guitarist, composer, teacher all-round great human being and author of playing with ease david leisner well thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me today and i'm really glad that you're in good health thank you um,
1: very much yes ridiculous really
0: i read your book years and years ago i was struggling with an injury in the left hand like a kind of tendonitis that i couldn't couldn't figure out where it came from. Looking back, I can definitely figure out where it came from. I see in those videos what, all kinds of crazy things I was doing. Uh-huh. Um, and I read your book then, and I read it a couple of years after that, and I read it again recently, and it's meant something different for me every time. I've gotten something different from it every time. So,
1: Oh, lovely to um, hear. Thank you. That's really nice to hear.
0: I'm sure you hear it a lot, <laughs> well, but I wanted to congratulate you because I, I don't think I've ever met a guitarist who's as um, eloquent as you. Oh,
1: thank you so much. I appreciate that.
0: (laughs) It really reads so easily.
1: Believe me, it wasn't easy. I mean, it was actually very easy to write just to get it out, you know, just to Mm -hmm. get it out because it's much of it is 40 years of teaching, you know, kind of on paper. But um, uh, some of it, of course, is newer than that. Uh, But the process of honing it down to get it to the place where it elicits a comment like yours, which I very much appreciate, was a long process of my own editing, the editing with four other uh, editor friends, plus mm-hmm. the Oxford University Press editor who was fabulous, and she really, really <laughs> nailed all the issues, you know, the, the writing issues, it was just great. So between all of us, uh, it was a it was a really great effort to make it as, as clear and communicative as it could be.
0: Having read a lot of you know technique books over the years, it's it's lovely to uh, find something that actually reads really really well and that is interesting and uh, yes, yeah.
1: good, lovely. So yeah, thank you here.
0: for writing this. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, I have many things to ask you, but I'm going to start by asking you my first question, which is, what is a lesson you've learned that's been the most meaningful to you?
1: You know, the best. Lesson that I the private lesson that I ever had in my life was with a violist Uh, Her name was Karen Tuttle. Karen was one of the great violists of our time. She uh, also happened to be mother of a very dear friend of mine and uh, So the my relationship with Karen Tuttle was through my friend and um, She it was a very natural lovely uh, uh, relationship, and uh, I found myself at their uh, house in Philadelphia. I had I happened to have my guitar with me, and there was an impromptu lesson that mm-hmm. took place. I think we were talking about the Bach Chacon, and I said uh, that I was playing it. I was working on it, and she said, oh, do you want to play it for me? <laughs> you know, this, this great musician, I mean, really one of the great musicians of all time. She's a very, mm-hmm. very um, highly respected violist. I mean, virtually every violist around now who, who's a player and a teacher that's maybe over the age of 40, 45, uh, they all studied with her. I mean, she taught at Curtis and Juilliard. Played with all the great orchestras and string quartets and so on. So when this person said to me, "Do you want to play the Bach Chacon? I was of course extremely nervous and, um, uh, but so so thrilled that she wanted to, that she would allow me to play for her and and I imagined would offer comments. Well, not only did she offer comments, she she turned my head around. She she knocked me upside down and turned me inside out. Uh, basically with one kind of idea, which was an idea that was original to her, but uh, gleaned in part from Casals, Pablo Casals, and Marcel Tabuteau, who was one of the great oboists that she worked with, um, and even some of the ideas of uh, Wilhelm Reich, who was a, a great psychologist therapist. They now call it Reichian therapy and her husband happened to be a Reichian therapist so she was very familiar with with that. All those uh, teachings um, converged in her, in in her own development and ultimately in her teaching and she passed it on to me. And it is basically about relinquishing to a phrase. she the first thing she said to me was, don't make the music happen, let it happen. Um, and then she proceeded to give me an example from Mozart's Eine kleine Nachtmusik. Yum, pum, pim, pum, pim pump pum, 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 right? So she did that by demonstrating first with her hand and then with her body. And her hand and her body ultimately did the same thing. This is, you know, I have to be, extra articulate here to describe this (laughs) on audio without the video component but what she was doing was thinking up on well she thinks in general up on most downbeats and up at the ends of phrases so and everything in between is a release so, and, and a downward motion, and a kind of a circular, or really elliptical motion that comes back around to the to the up part of the ellipse. So, the beginning would be up on yum, and then it'd be another up on bum bum on that one, and then bum 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 bum, and that would be up again. And everything in between would be a down or on the way to up. Well, all that stuff down and on the way to up is a physical release. So whereas you can talk about it as ups and downs and so on, the really important thing is that you feel it in your body, from your pelvis up through the top of your torso. If you kind of think of a, of a, a Martha Graham or a Martha Graham Dancer, who who danced from the middle of their body, they danced from their pelvis. That was what she was famous for. And Karen Tuttle's idea was to to originate everything from the middle of your body and make the top of your, or rather the, the torso, the whole torso, be very fluid and flexible and easy. So that in other words, most of the time that you're playing any phrase, you are releasing tension because as you're, instead of your, your torso being rigid in any way, it's being fluid and malleable and bendable. Mm-hmm. And so, as you're thinking bum 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 pim yam bum 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 pim, it's a very easy, fluid motion that your body makes. And of course you can exaggerate it Uh, as has to be done in the beginning and then you can feel it more internally and you don't have to exaggerate it anymore but feel the release and the the flexibility and fluidity of the torso through the phrase. This turned me around 180 degrees because it was completely the opposite of what I and what most people do when Mm. they play any instrument and so what it did was it freed me up uh, whereas my playing had, my phrasing had a kind of rigidity to it before, all of a sudden there was a new fluidity in the phrasing. In other words, the fluidity of my body um, became or uh, translated into the fluidity of phrasing and the musicality. And <laughs> by the end of the lesson, I was playing the Bafshakon completely differently than at the beginning. Mm-hmm. It was like if I was a different player completely.
0: Did it make your performance different? Did you feel like people responded to it differently than they had done before?
1: Oh, of course, absolutely. Yeah, immediately. Oh yeah, of course, because once I grasped it, you know, it takes a while because you're working Mm -hmm. like anything, you learn something new, you're working against old habits, uh, and old habits, as we know, die hard. So uh, (laughs) it takes a little while, you know, but uh, once, yes, once I incorporated it, in my playing there was no question i was a much more communicative player and the audience was set more at ease with my playing i could feel it and i could tell from comments afterwards and so on that it was a different kind of response to the playing mm-hmm. and of course like anything you learn you know you sometimes you remember it better than others sometimes you forget it and then you got to remind yourself and you know so i I've had my ups and downs with that idea, but basically I have kept that ever since that amazing lesson.
0: Is it something that you have to practice or is it something that you find you do a bit more innately now that you've? uh... I
1: I pretty much do it innately. I mean, sometimes I do have to remind myself and (laughs) if I feel physically tight or I feel the phrasing is kind of a little stodgy, I'll sort of remind myself of it and exaggerate while I'm playing mm-hmm. and just say, hey, remember what Karen said and just get back to that and then, and then I'm good.
0: <laughs> mm. You know, you read a lot of stuff about how kids have this innate um, gesture or sort of innate ability to interpret things, I wonder, what your thought is on that? Do you think that that rigidity is something that we learn, or do you oh, think yes. it's something that comes naturally? Oh
1: uh, no, no, it's absolutely something we learn. That's a great comment. Um, a, a kid, you know, especially up to about the age of five or six, maybe seven, is very natural. Their body, mm-hmm. their their body movement is very natural. Everything, for example, that an Alexander technique teacher teaches you see exemplified in a in a baby that's two or three years old, you know, it's it's all there (laughs) Um, So that is that kind of ease and lack of rigidity is natural to most children I mean obviously there are some that are born differently for whatever reason I mean, you know, it either is um, it's probably not um, something that's in the DNA but something that's in the upbringing or the the atmosphere at home you know some people grow up in a very troubled home and become very tight and and rigid very early even in age one or two or three but most of us have this wonderful fluidity and naturalness right from the start and then probably around age six or seven or so we start to get screwed up <laughs> you know? up till then a kid doesn't think so much they're still free in their minds uh, and then as soon as you, as soon as the brain gets in the way and people start thinking or kids start thinking too much, that's when t- things go awry and then you, kind of, you spend sometimes a long time undoing all that damage that you did when those things set in. And that's true for most people, I think. It's, it's yeah, not an unusual thing at all. It's a very, very uh, regular, normal thing mm-hmm. to happen
0: talking about injury, I feel like most of the people that I know who seem to play with ease or to play in a way that looks comfortable, whenever you ask them, like, oh, what, you know, what are you thinking of? It always stems from some kind of huge injury. So it's always um, in a response to a past thing. So, oh, I used to tense up my shoulder loads and then I got this problem. And now I try to, you know, it feels like all this knowledge kind of comes from trying to you know, I'm trying to return to the pre-injury or pre-injured state.
1: That's so interesting. Well, that is definitely my experience. I mean, most of the things, many of the things that I talk about in my book are things that I have come to uh, to to realize from from being injured myself on on some level or having some tension that needed to be get rid of, and I just. Set my mind and and effort to okay. How do I get rid of this? And that's that's often how it how it happens mm. for me. So it's nice to hear that other people have the same the same experience.
0: Yeah, I think it's quite a universal one, especially in the classical music world, because you've got the sort of double threat of not just that it is in itself quite an uncomfortable undertaking playing an instrument. But also that there's an immense amount of pressure and, um, you know, perhaps not really the best care surrounding our industry, as there might be in other um, high performance fields like in sport or such.
1: Absolutely. Um, And that's because in sports, you have so much money behind it. Music making is not a big money maker, except for the very, very, very few So you know, because sports is such a big money maker, they put lots of effort into this stuff.
0: Very tragic.
1: It it is. Um, It really is. But we're fixing it slowly but surely.
0: Slowly, I suppose. Yes, and surely, you're right. Very slowly, slowly, though. That's the key word. Yes, Um, right. (laughs) But I was wondering, because a lot of, um, you know, in healthcare now, we're moving towards a lot more preventive healthcare rather than just rehabilitative, which I think is really interesting when it comes to music, because we are by nature, a bunch of problem solvers. In our practice, we sit down to solve problems. In our lessons, we sit down to solve somebody else's problems. Um, I'm wondering if you have any suggestions through all of your research and your sort of personal experience of how as a teacher or as somebody who maybe has a child who's just starting out in music what are some cues that we can give to start students off in sort of learning in the right sort of way in a more um in a more relaxed and a more healthy way rather than um waiting for the sort of statutory 10 years before they are already injured and then <laughs> looking at the problems
1: mm. That's a very good question, and I'm probably not the best person to answer it because I don't teach beginners. Um, So I haven't given that very much thought at all. I do know that, um, for example, my ideas about large muscle engagement, which are central to my ideas about about playing with ease and playing and preventing injury, um, those things should not be taught At the very beginning because it's too much information so other things need to be taught other more basic things need to be taught and then that can be brought in later Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say that yes it would it it would be a good idea to bring in some at least some of those ideas to get young people, the youngest, the youngest players, to think to thinking about uh, engaging and supporting w- with the larger muscles, but it cannot be the first thing that's taught. Mm. What is the first thing that should be taught? I'm not sure I know. <laughs> I, I think much of it, you know, might have to, and I'm really, you know, saying this off the top of my head with, with almost no experience with beginners, I... I would imagine that much of it has to do with attitude or almost philosophy of of making music, making it in a healthy way. The the first teacher that I had uh, was a folk guitar teacher, and she was wonderful for me and mostly wonderful because she ingrained in me an attitude of... Playing from your heart and playing, um, playing in a way that the, that the music matters, you know, and not being so worried about every little note or chord or you know mm-hmm. every sound that comes out of you, but you know, just naturally letting the music come come forward through you. That was a good a good starter for me, because the other stuff, the refinement stuff, the the stuff of you know, refining your technique and precision and all those things. That, that comes later. You don't have to work that stuff in from the very beginning.
0: What is a lesson that you would like to impart?
1: Yes, let's see. I had thought about this. Um, oh, yes. This is very, um, you know, again, philosophical and maybe a little woo-woo. But <laughs> uh, I think it's really important to learn the lesson of letting go. And that is on so many levels. I mean, as, as one kind of example, for instance, you you know, when, when you're learning a piece, you get it in your fingers first and you get familiar with the piece and then you kind of work and work and work it. And at some point, you just have to let it go and go to something else and work on something else and come back to it. And most, Players, particularly guitarists, tend to hold on to a piece for way too long before mm-hmm. letting it go. Pretty much in the beginning I would recommend that you get a piece, once you get a piece into your fingers, that's time to put it away and come back to it later. Most people don't don't do that and then they get more and more uptight about about the piece and the technique of the piece and learning the piece and it becomes fraught with a kind of negative energy. Whereas if you let it go at a point where you're you're still kind of learning it, getting into it, then you come back to it fresh. And when you come back, of course, it only takes one at a times through the, the the piece or the movement to 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 get it back, and then you're, it's already better without having worked on it. It's already better, and then from there you you go on and it gets better, and then you you put it away again after a certain while. And you don't have to just keep working, keep working, keep working on something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a- another example of the same thing is uh, when, when a, a student uh, is preparing a program, uh, they'll often prepare all the pieces of the program at the same time, keep it all up. No, I think, you know, you need, again, to let go of things for a while. You work on one piece for a while, you let it go. You work on another piece for a while, let it go. You, come, you work on a third piece, let it go. Then you come back to the first piece, you know, mm-hmm. let it go. And, it, and then, you know, maybe maybe a month before you have to play the program in public, or maybe even less, then you start to play a whole half of a program, or you play then a whole program that's when things come together in that way but there's no need to keep everything up at its top level it, it just makes you tenser and may ultimately makes you less musical so um i know i'm gabbing on here but but i have a lot to say yeah. I, I the same thing is true when we play our instruments most typical guitar physical stance is to uh, have the, the nose really close to the fingerboard and uh, you know and just, it's almost like you're playing with your nose uh, mm-hmm. you know and it's like you're looking really closely because you want to be in control you know mm-hmm. Um, or and you lean forward a lot and you, you know you you want to be in control of it and you also you you hover very close to the strings with your left hand because you want to be in control and you want to plant your strings on the uh, your fingers rather on the strings with your right hand to be in control but it's much healthier in my opinion to get the bird's eye view to sit back from it sit back with your torso from your instrument and don't worry so much about control let the control kind of present itself you don't have to again like what karen tuttle said to me you don't have to make the music happen you let it happen so Mm -hmm. you just you know if you are that you're so much more able to do that Mm -hmm. if you just give yourself some space physically from the instrument and you trust yourself which is a big deal (laughs) most of us don't (laughs) trust ourselves and you know you you trust yourself and you and yeah maybe in the beginning you start you start in the beginning to to miss more notes but the more you do that the more controlled you get and ultimately You're in much greater control technically of what you're doing than you would be if you were sitting forward with your neck on your left hand finger. (laughs) Mm. Yeah,
0: it's interesting. I think we have this real, I don't want to say problem, but there's something about this kind of fetishizing of pain that we have in the music industry
1: that yes. lends
0: itself to that, you know, this being in control in the sense that you spend twelve hours a day working on one passage, and oh. there's this sort of, um, yeah, like an obsession with with yes. with pain, really, in a way. Um, yes,
1: although it's just, I think the word obsession is right on. That 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 hits the target on the on the head because that you know it is an obsession, and most musicians are obsessive. Let's face it. Yeah. We're, that's partly why we're musicians. We're, we all tend to be obsessive, so the thing is, how do you mitigate that? How do you, you know, <laughs> make it make it easier? <laughs> yeah, easier definitely. on yourself. You know, don't how don't. How do you obsess.
0: engage your natural laziness to yeah. help yeah. yourself relax yeah. a little more <laughs> instead yeah, of punishing yourself?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's beautifully <laughs> yes. said. That's beautifully said. That's it, exactly.
0: Mm. Yeah. It's so nice to talk about it because I think it's especially in music education because once you leave education it's a little bit more um, you have to listen to yourself a little bit more anyway because you're navigating things sort of on your own but definitely when you're in music school or when you're at conservatory you see everybody around you practicing for this many hours doing this many things having this injury but still doing that or you know and everybody trying to sort of squeeze everything into one space and I think it's nice that there's a few more conversations happening around just, yeah, letting go, I suppose it is a good way of saying it, um, around not having to be in pain constantly or not suffering constantly. Um, There's no
1: need. There's no need for it. If If you have pain, you're doing the wrong thing. If you're suffering, you're doing the wrong thing. What's it for? What are we doing this for? We're doing this for pleasure. We're doing this to for love. We're doing this to make beautiful music. We're you know, we're we're not doing this to be painful. We're not doing this to suffer. You know, we might yeah. want to communicate suffering. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful thing to communicate. Mm-hmm. But not to literally suffer in order to do it. We want to we want to be able to enjoy it and and, and make it a beautiful thing in our lives especially so that we can continue doing it lifelong because yeah. if it's too painful then nobody wants to continue doing it all their life long.
0: it's a shame because our industry doesn't really have any celebration of methods um, so, you know, we, we suffer just as much. There's not, uh, you know, 10 Buzzfeed articles about us losing 60 pounds for a roll or not sleeping for 30 days. You know, there's no, there's no glory in that. Um, yes. The audience just sees you looking tired and, um, and sort of struggling, and that's not, that's not ever fun.
1: No, it's never fun. And if, and if that is happening to you or to anybody, then you have to rethink. You have to think, what am I doing wrong? There's something that's not right about this because mm-hmm. when things are going well when it when you're doing the things correctly whatever that means there's many different thousands of correct ways to do things mm-hmm. when you're doing things the right way then it feels good it's joyful mm-hmm. it's joyful act of making music uh, whether we're practicing or whether we're playing for other people should be joyful. It shouldn't be a torture no. mm-hmm. and so if it's if it's not joyful then you need to figure out how can I make this joyful
0: I like that you use the word joyful I think we've said wrong and correct a few times now mm. it's definitely something I wanted to talk to you about because you mentioned in the book that um, at least that in some parts you were hesitant or that you wanted people to think twice over the use of particular words um, I think politicized or loaded language Yes. In, um, yeah, in the music industry, but actually everywhere is really something that it can kind of mediate a whole experience of something. I wondered, was it particularly difficult writing the book knowing how much language in the music world is entrenched in stigma around? Uh...
1: Well, yes, I, it wasn't difficult for me to write it in light of that, but I was <laughs> worried <laughs> you know how my how my ideas uh and articulation of ideas would be taken in the guitar community, especially uh, less so in you know other other instrumentalists are more open minded i think this mm-hmm. might have been my experience, but guitarists, because we are in such a ghetto, you know we don't play an orchestra we t- tend not to play as much chamber music as we ought to playing with other instruments. So uh, guitarists tend to be in a ghetto and, uh, and as a result, they tend to be rather close-minded. And, um, and that close-mindedness, I really regret. And I, I wish it wasn't that way, but it is. And, and I was very aware that my, my book might meet some you know, real resistance. And in fact, it has. There, I have had some of that resistance People have said, "Oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, it has nothing to do with what um, any good physical therapist would tell you or what a good doctor would tell you." But that's exactly why I'm saying what I'm saying. Because uh, in fact, I, I'm the guy that people go to when those those people don't work for people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I'm the one who who can fix people who have problems that other other people of other disciplines cannot fix. Um, and and you know it does have to do with a lot of it has to do with this language that you're speaking about. And and yes, language is important, and language uh you know makes can make somebody also deaf or blind to other kinds of languages. Um and I think the important thing really is to stay open and try everything, you know, mm. give everything a try. If if what I say doesn't work for you. That's fine, you know. It's just it's offered in the spirit of of what I know and understand, and I of course think it, it's right and works for most people, if if not everybody, probably not everybody. But and if it doesn't work for you, I, I, I'm not going to be upset about it, you know. But <laughs> but I but I do appreciate when somebody takes the time, even if they're uh, suspicious of or. Uh, you know, resistant to or even sometimes resentful of language Mm -hmm. that I might use, maybe just give it a try and get in my head for a little bit and see if it works for you. And if it doesn't, well, then there's other things to try, you know, other approaches. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But openness is so important, I think, really important.
0: Yeah. Even if you start with just a little bit, I always um, mention this as an example, but we live in, uh, in an industry where you can get cancelled for playing the chicane in the french style or not so yes it's, it's really um we're talking about small small things here yes. that end up uh, on a global scale yes like so this, i this think you can't beat anyone
1: <laughs> this stuff drives me absolutely nuts With the, just that thing that you're talking about drives me nuts or somebody uh, will, for example, look at a video of me playing and they'll, they make comments sometimes on YouTube or whatever. They say, look at his hand, he's moving. his right hand is moving all over the place. Well, yeah, but how does it sound? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, t- tell me how it sounds to you, you know? I mean, uh, okay, so it, it goes against the grain of what you've been told to be economic in motion and, And that's fine, Uh, but maybe there's something to it.
0: (laughs) It's just that, isn't it? It's it's really crazy. I have this experience a lot on Instagram because whenever you have a big pool of audience, uh, there's always going to be, you know, there's a lot of representation there of a lot of different opinions and people have a lot of opinions. Yes. Um, But I suppose just learning to care a little less because most of the time when you post something, it's just... uh, because you you had fun. I probably wouldn't do it the same now, even 20 seconds later or 20 minutes later or so it's, it's done.
1: That's <laughs> so true. And let me say, while, while you're talking about that, this is really, I think, an, a central issue in what we're talking about. You're talking about people, especially guitarists, because it, we are really talking about guitarists mm-hmm. here, who have very uh, deep set opinions about things. Mm-hmm. You know, Guitarists are often taught, I mean, it's true of many musicians really, but guitarists especially, are taught to be judgmental. They think they're being taught to be critical, but, they're, but they, they're really being taught to be judgmental. And what they need to be taught is how to be observant. Because when you are observant, you then have the wherewithal, the materials, to make a judgment. You have the materials to make improvement in your own playing. You know, so instead of, for example, judging your own playing and saying, well, that was lousy, you know, just make an observation. How did that sound, you know? I mean, basically, observation is what did you hear, what did you see, Mm -hmm. and what did you feel? Those are the pillars of observation. And if you can, for example, witness somebody's performance and give them observations afterwards, what did you see, what did you hear, what did you feel, your your feedback is going to be so much more helpful. And that feedback might ultimately lead to very helpful criticism that is constructive. But when you start with judgment, it's (laughs) destructive right from the start.
0: It's something I say to my students as well. It's you mm. never get a connoisseur who just hates all the wine. The connoisseur is a person that knows what they're looking for, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. It doesn't make you a better uh, doesn't make you a better player if you hate everything. In fact That's it's just right. the same as liking everything, right?
1: Yes, exactly balance, back to that balance.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think constructive criticism has gotten a really bad rep. I think it's um, in the way that language becomes politicized or that it starts to mean something else, that it becomes loaded. Hmm. I think constructive criticism suffers from... Uh, falling into a kind of like almost sort of like hippie style language where it has to be in a, in a balance. You have to say something good and you have to say something bad, which really <laughs> isn't what it means, constructive criticism. But I find it fascinating.
1: Yes. Well, I do feel when I teach, um, I do whenever possible, which is most of the time, like to begin with my comments with something positive. Uh, and not just something superficially positive, but something deeply, something deeply positive, something observantly positive um, that that makes the, the the student recognize that I've heard them, that I've heard what they practiced, I've heard what they intended to, to convey. Because when you start that way, then you immediately the student immediately has a feeling: oh, I've been heard, I've been understood, and then. Then they they're open to whatever criticisms you have. I mean, because I think positive comments are, are a part of criticism, just like negative ones. And negative ones don't have to be well. That really sucked, you know. But it could, you know, yeah. could just be a more observant detail of of things that that you thought could be better, you know. So yeah.
0: This is a little call for all people sitting in juries that uh, I just yes. didn't like it. It's not good. <laughs> not good. Yeah, <laughs> I just, oh. just, didn't, just didn't like it. It wasn't, wasn't for me. Mm. Oh. But I will ask you because I don't want to keep you forever. Um, although I am loving this and I wish I could keep you forever online. <laughs> um, but what is a lesson that you're currently learning?
1: Mm. Well, you know, I go through different stages in my career. I mean, I, you know, I. I'm 68 years old, so I've been in various ups and downs uh, throughout my mm-hmm. career of of playing this and playing that, and uh, you know, doing uh, falling into one habit and then getting out of that one and falling into another one. So at the moment, the the, the the thing that I'm concentrating on the most that I constantly have to remind myself of is is one of the most basic aspects, as I think of it, of of right hand, of the right hand in playing, which is finding the precise spot where flesh and nail meet the string at the same moment. That little tiny detail is so incredibly important and what happens to me sometimes is I forget that and then I gravitate away from it just slightly like we're just talking about you know, a millimeter <laughs> or maybe less mm-hmm. and and that tiny bit gets me out of control, it gets my sound less focused, uh, it gets my playing less clean. Uh, when I go back to thinking about that, finding that precise spot where the flesh and nail meet the string at the same moment, for every finger that's playing, whether it's playing a single note or whether it's playing two notes at a time or three or four, um, every single note if possible, played, you know, that way. Well, wow, when I do that, my playing just takes a whole leap of improvement. So, I'm at that place right now, like for the last, I don't know, a couple of months, I've been, I made a recording in December and and, uh, in preparing for the recording, I realized I was losing that. And when I got it back, I saw, I heard, and felt that, wow, this is, this is my playing. This is the real. This is this is how I want to sound. You know, um, mm-hmm. so uh, this is the lesson I'm I'm currently learning and and or relearning and and working on.
0: Now that you said it, it always feels like one of those first things that I learned on guitar. Probably something that I still definitely need to um, or could do with having a look at. Actually, <laughs> yeah, I,
1: I think you know we can we can never take anything for granted because things fall by the wayside you know we concentrate on on one thing say something new comes up when we concentrate on that for a while and then we forget that thing that we learned as the first thing that we learned to play guitar so it's it's natural that that happens you just have to stay on top of it and be open you know and listen and and feel like okay well something's wrong here you know what what's going on oh that's what
0: it is. <laughs> and now, a really quick word from one of our sponsors. Altamira is the leading brand of handcrafted traditional guitars, specializing in classical nylon string, historical replica, and gypsy jazz guitars. Altamira fosters music education and performance through its foundation that hosts and sponsors international symposiums and competitions in Asia, Europe, North America, and Australia. I've recently been lucky enough to be sent an N3 model guitar from Altamira and it is one of the cleanest, easiest to play instruments that I've ever had the chance to have in my collection. They're beautiful instruments, handcrafted, and you can tell. These instruments are wonderful, they have models right down from the beginning right up until concert instruments that you'd be proud to put your name to you can check them out at altamiriguitars.com and again i'll put that link in the description box so that you can check it out at your own pace thanks so much for listening and i'll see you next week for the next episode of fret Not.